You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. As well, you can hear these podcasts at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. There are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, which are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works, Volume 98 by Rudolf Steiner, the listener's notes to 18 lectures entitled Nature and Spirit Beings, their activity in our visible world, translated by Christian von Arnhem. This is the third lecture, given in Dusseldorf on the 15th of December 1907, entitled Rosicrucianism. When we speak about the initiation of the Rosicrucians, or the Rosicrucian initiation, we must first of all briefly bring the concept of initiation before our souls. In general, it consists of seeking the way to penetrate into the higher worlds that underlie our sensory world through our own experience. We must distinguish between three kinds of people, initiates, clairvoyants, and adepts. These are three different ways of entering into a relationship with the higher worlds. Today let us speak of how a person can come to know the supersensory worlds in their own experience. We will dispense with the threefold division today, but we will clearly bear in mind that when we speak of initiation, we have before us one method of initiation. Anyone who considers that people seek the way to the higher worlds from different starting points will easily get over the difference in the various methods. When we reach the summit of a mountain, we have an unobstructed view from up there. To reach the top, we can start from different points of departure. Different paths can be taken. It would be nonsensical if, in order to reach the summit, we did not use the path that lies before us but first went around the mountain. Let us apply this principle to initiation. Here we also find different starting points, given by the fact that people have different natures. External science is not in a position to really study the subtle differences which are involved. Our physiologists and anatomists are not able, with their crude instruments and methods, to discover these subtle differences in human beings. But to anyone who has occult knowledge, there is a vast difference between a person born in the Middle East and one born in Europe or in America. It shows right down into the physical nature. There is an enormous difference between a person who still has the living direct sense of and feeling for Christ and a person who is completely alienated from the original Christian feeling and has their whole worldview given to them by the achievements of modern science. Not only are the feelings and thoughts of such a person different from those of a Christian mind, but this difference can be observed even in the physical body. There are such subtle differences which intervene in the finest structures of the body that physiology and biology know nothing about them. Therefore, human nature must be taken into account, and we cannot assign the same path to all human beings in order to ascend through higher development into the higher worlds. To understand this, we have to go back to earlier times of humanity. 
humanity has gone through a long evolution. In the period we call the Atlantean, our ancestors, that is, our own souls, lived in quite different bodies in ancient Atlantis, over in the west, between our present Europe and America. Then came those floods to which the story of the flood in the Bible and the various other flood sagas refer, those floods which brought about the demise of ancient Atlantis. This was followed by the post-Atlantean development which is still ongoing. We have gone through four periods in post-Atlantean development and we are still in the fifth. The first of these periods was the ancient Indian culture. There the peoples themselves were taught by the holy rishis, inspired men of whom a person today can have no idea. Then came the second culture, the Persian, with the Zarathustra religion. The third culture was the Babylonian, Assyrian, Chaldean, Egyptian culture, from which Hebrew culture slowly developed. The fourth was the Greco-Roman cultural stream within which Christianity arose which took its elements from the people, which had its organic development from the third culture. Now we are living in the fifth culture, heading toward the sixth. It is not only thinking that has changed in the long period since the Atlantean catastrophe, but also the astral body, the etheric body, and the physical body. But we should not imagine that all human beings stand alike in our fifth cultural stream. Many characteristics of the earlier cultural streams have been preserved. What developed consecutively still lives side by side. Because human beings have passed through quite different cultural streams, the resulting changes in their whole being meant that the way in which they were introduced to the higher worlds by their spiritual leaders had to be different. In the Atlantean period, people were still clairvoyant, in the astral sphere. They lived there with their gods and spirits as much as with the outer plants, minerals, animals, and people. In the post-Atlantean period, people could no longer gain this access to the higher worlds. They could no longer penetrate into the higher worlds through direct contemplation of the divine spiritual, but only in an artificial way could they put themselves back into the state through which they again became companions of the gods. This is the basis of the Indian way of yoga initiation. This yoga initiation into the higher worlds consists essentially in dampening the consciousness that the human being has acquired in the post-Atlantean period, the external perception, and in putting themselves back into earlier clairvoyant states of consciousness, such as the Atlanteans had. If we follow the development of humanity further, beyond the Persian and Chaldean cultural streams, we come to the Christian cultural stream. It brought with it Christian initiation, which can only be attained through a direct relationship with Jesus Christ through the Gospel of John and the Apocalypse. Then in the 13th and 14th centuries there followed the first dawn of the materialistic cultural stream. At that time, enlightened people were able to recognize now the material time is rising. Everything that fully came to fulfillment in the 19th century 
that appeared in its extreme form had been prepared long before. Materialism is not only to be found in the spheres of external activity, but must be sought in all fields. Until the 13th, 14th century, people retained a quite different sentiment and feeling. The change occurs in all areas, even the seemingly most remote ones. In painting, for example, we encounter the great change in people's feeling. Today it seems arbitrary to the materialist when, for example, Simabu paints the background in his pictures in gold. Readers aside, I'm pronouncing C-I-M-A-B-U-E, Simabu, apologies if that's incorrect, end of readers aside. But at that time, this painter still had the tradition of a perception of the higher world. If we look into the highest regions of the astral world, then we find that this gold background is a reality. Those who later wanted to paint something similar as imitators of these older painters who still had knowledge of the reality of the astral world through tradition, appear to us as barbarians compared to those who really still had a relationship with the higher worlds. In Giotto's work, for example, there is no longer a representation of what he felt to be the truth, but everything is painted only out of external tradition. In his time it was natural to move to that which can only be seen on the physical plane, to materialistic art. Only the greatest painters of that time still held on to tradition. In Raphael's Disputa, we can see how in the basic tones from bottom to top is indeed reproduced with a certain correctness that experience which a person has when they rise into the higher worlds. This is a necessity this gradual experience of the transition from the lower to the higher worlds up to the vision of those genie who emerge from the gold ground. Anyone who knows the spiritual truths knows that behind the physical facts there is something else. They know that the reason why people are materialists today is that they are under external materialistic influences. But this is not only a question of external perception. We also learn about other reasons from the standpoint of occultism. Thought and sentiment are realities that radiate out into the world. We are surrounded by materialistic thoughts. These thoughts are buzzing around us everywhere. Even if no books or magazines expressing materialistic views reach the farmer out in the countryside, they are still surrounded by these materialistic thoughts which influence them, which are relevant. If we ask how a human being entered existence at a time when people still knew something about occult powers, we find that at that time care was taken, for example in China, that the human being on entering the physical world was received by people who were filled with spiritual thoughts. This is something quite different from when they are received by a materialistic doctor and a materialistically thinking environment. The human being is confronted with completely different things than was previously the case in an environment with spiritual thoughts. It is here that we must seek the reason for the materialistic attitude of human beings. Since the 13th and 14th centuries, 
Human beings have been immersed in a materialistic atmosphere from the moment of their birth. That had to be the case. But a method had to be created for those who wished to ascend to the higher worlds by which they could become strong and powerful enough to enable them to ascend to the spiritual worlds in spite of these external materialistic conditions. This method of initiation is the Rosicrucian method, which originated at the turn of the 13th and 14th centuries and was first inaugurated by Christian Rosenkreutz, one of the great leaders of humanity. Strictly isolated from the outer world, this method has been at work in the centuries since that time, known only to a narrow circle, and was most strictly isolated in the 19th century, the materialistic one. It was only in its last third that it became necessary to make known to the world, in theosophy, at least in its elementary parts, what had been taught in the schools of the Rosicrucians. In 1459, the actual founder of the Rosicrucian stream himself attained that stage through which he had the power to influence the world in such a way that from him this initiation could be brought to the world. Since that time, this individuality of Christian Rosenkreutz has repeatedly been there as the leader of the relevant stream. Throughout the centuries, it led a life, quote, in the same body, close quote. We have to understand this expression, in quotes, in the same body, like this. If we look at the physical body, we find that what made it ten years ago is now no longer in the physical body, but the consciousness has remained the same. Every seven or eight years, the human being replaces all the parts of their physical body, but consciousness survives this continual exchange of physical substances throughout life. What we go through in this way between birth and death, the initiate goes through such that when they die, they are reborn soon afterward in a new body as a child. But they follow this path fully consciously. Consciousness remains present from one incarnation to the next. Even the physical resemblance remains with the initiate because the soul consciously builds up the new body from the experience of the previous incarnation. This is how the highest leader of the Rosicrucian school lived for centuries. The possibility of making known some of the principles of the Rosicrucians did not exist until now. To this point, nothing of this had been revealed. Only once, had something of it been communicated. What leads the human being up into the higher worlds, according to the Rosicrucian method, are the following seven stages. First, study. Second, the acquisition of imaginative knowledge. Third, learning the occult script. Fourth, the preparation of the philosopher's stone. Fifth, the correspondence of microcosm and macrocosm. Sixth, rising into the macrocosm, seventh, blessedness. This does not mean that these seven grades must be passed through one stage after the other. The pupil who meets a Rosicrucian teacher receives their instructions for higher development 
in such a way that these correspond to their individuality. From the seven stages of higher development is chosen what is most suitable for them. A person might begin with the first and second stages and then perhaps the fourth and fifth will follow for them. The only thing which everyone must start with is that which is called study. Here, however, study means something different from what is understood by it in ordinary life. Here it means the specific acquisition of ideas and concepts which is called non-sensory thinking. All the thinking of ordinary people is attached to the external senses. Pay attention to everything you experience from morning to evening and think away everything you have seen and heard externally. For most people, then, very little or nothing remains. But the human being, if they want to follow the path to the higher worlds, must get into the habit of being able to think even if the source of their thinking lies only in their own inner being, without being linked with the outer world. The only kind of non-sensory thinking in European countries is arithmetic. The child learns that two times two is four, first of all from an external observation, from their fingers or beans or from the dreadful calculators, but a person does not arrive at a satisfactory result in this field as long as they cannot form these ideas without the crutch of the external observation. A circle can never be seen in external reality. Circles drawn on a blackboard are chalk mounds strung together. Only an imagined circle is exact. You have to construct the circle in your mind. You have to think the circle. Today, non-sensory thinking can only be found in people in the field of numbers and geometry. But this is not accessible to most people and is therefore only mentioned for comparison. The best means of acquiring non-sensory thinking is theosophy itself, because there a person hears about things which they have not seen. What people learn there, how the human being consists of a physical, etheric and astral body, or how the earth itself is developed through the various states, cannot be seen. Only when we make an effort to think and see the inner logic of the matter can we understand these things with ordinary logic, if only we would place ourselves on this all-encompassing foundation of logic. If people today say that they cannot comprehend it, it is not because they lack clairvoyance, but because they do not want to apply the logic of comprehending things in such a way. The experiences of the clairvoyant can be understood with ordinary logic. Clairvoyance is only necessary to investigate these things. What is present in theosophy is the only logical thing as regards theoretical and practical life. On the other hand, what people present in a materialistic way about supersensory things is illogical. What spiritual science brings is what is really fruitful in a concrete way in life. If we look at the principle of education from the point of view of the theosophical worldview and from the standpoint of a materialistic outlook, we can make a comparison. In the former, things are said about the developing human being that cannot be seen externally. But it is the case 
that we have precisely in this what is genuine, what is real and concrete. Today's worldview does not understand the developing child. Only when we take into account the whole being of a person and not just an external perspective do we learn to place the fullness of the human being into the world. At the same time, the person who immerses themselves in the teachings of the theosophical worldview has a means of learning non-sensory thinking. True theosophy will always aim to develop non-sensory thinking as much as possible. If we look at the theosophical teachings, we find descriptions of states we cannot see. If we look at the evolution of our earth and what it emerged from, we describe that planetary state in which everything was different from the stage of our present earth, the old moon, not the present one, where there was not yet a solid mineral crust on which a person could walk, but where the planet only existed in a kind of plant nature, in this mass which we can compare with lettuce or spinach. Solid elements were only present in the way that the bark of trees is today. Mineral matter did not exist at that time. If this is disputed from a materialistic point of view, because we can only think of plants growing on mineral soil, then we can admit that this is indeed not possible in any other way under today's conditions. But at that time, quite different conditions prevailed. The materialists cannot imagine this because they always start from today's conditions. But in such images you can free yourself from what you see around you. Nonsense turns to sense when we look at circumstances which are far removed. That is where we learn to educate ourselves, to get away from our sensory situation. We learn to place pictures in front of our soul of things we are not familiar with today. In this way, our thinking moves away from the possibilities given today. Those who strive to connect their thinking only with what would be possible today cling to today's conditions and cannot get away from them. For study in the Rosicrucian sense, it is important to practice our thinking precisely on these images of conditions as they no longer exist. To let concept develop out of concept in full non-sensory thinking is a means of arriving at what is called study. This can also be achieved by studying a book such as the title Philosophy of Freedom. Here the writer is simply given the opportunity for the thoughts to think themselves. The individual thoughts have developed out of themselves on the basis of full non-sensory thinking, structured themselves out of themselves, so that no thought could be removed from where it stands and be placed somewhere else, just as little as the hand could be cut off from the body and placed elsewhere. This is the way of non-sensory thinking. To swing ourselves up into the higher worlds in burning desire, that is something that many want, but it is something unhealthy. Healthy striving is only when inwardly sound logic is cultivated out of thinking that is free from all sensory aspects. Those who know about the higher worlds know that the perceptions in the higher worlds are quite different from those in the physical world. But there is one thing that remains the same element in the three worlds, 
the physical, astral, and devachonic worlds. That is logical thinking. This sure guide saves us from all illusion. Without it, we never learn to distinguish illusion from reality and end up mistaking every illusion for astral reality. Here in the physical world, it is easy to distinguish illusions from realities because the external facts correct us. For example, if you have gone along the wrong street, you will not arrive at the right place. In the higher worlds, we have to find the right way ourselves by our own spiritual power. Otherwise, we get into ever more difficult labyrinths there if we have not first learned to distinguish illusion from reality. We can learn this through training in the Rosicrucian sense. The second thing in the Rosicrucian training is imaginative cognition, cognition in pictures. This is the first stage of rising from the physical world into a spiritual world. Goethe gave the light motif for this in the last words of the second part of his title Faust when he says, quote, All that is transient is but a parable. Close quote. When we begin to consider everything that surrounds us as being spiritual images, then we are striving upward into the world of imaginations. In the schools of the Rosicrucians and also in earlier schools, the attempt was made to make clear to the pupils the principle of development through the various realms. Today people speak of development in materialistic thinking. Theosophy also refers to it. But it is another thing to transform the concept of development into an image, to raise it to the level of imagination. Usually only reason is occupied with the principle of development. We come to the imagination in the following way. For many weeks or months the soul was transformed by the teacher's instructions in the following way. The best way to describe this is in the form of a dialogue, which, however, never took place in this form. The teacher might say the following. Look at the plant how it strives upward with its leaves and blossoms toward the sun and lowers the root into the ground, striving toward the center of the earth. If you compare it with a human being, it is wrong to compare the flower with his head, the root with his reproductive organs. Darwin made the comparison correctly. He pointed out that the root of the plant corresponds to the head of the human being. The human being is the inverted plant. The root that the plant sinks into the ground, corresponds to the head of the human being. But that which the plant holds chastely toward the sun, the blossom and the organs of fertilization, the human being turns toward the earth. If you turn the plant completely upside down, you have the human being. If you turn it halfway, you have the animal which has a horizontal backbone. When we consider these things imaginatively, it is not only our thought, but also our sensation and feeling that is led deeply into the world surrounding us. We learn to recognize the inner relationship between plant and human being. We recognize the pure, chaste plant nature, which is not yet permeated by desires and passions, and the nature of the human being, in whom the chaste plant substance has been transformed into the flesh, permeated by desires and passions. 
but at the same time a higher element enters the latter's being through this. Through this they have won for themselves the bright daytime consciousness. The plant is asleep, but the human being has gained their bright daytime consciousness by being incarnated in the flesh, which is permeated by desires, passions, instincts. For this they had to make the full rotation. The animal stands in the middle. It may have desires and passions, but it has not yet attained the clear consciousness of day. The teacher said to the pupil, When you feel this, you will understand Plato's saying, The world's soul is crucified on the world's body, plant, animal, human being. That is the real deepest innermost meaning of the sign of the cross. What infuses the realms of nature as general soulfulness, as world soul, appears as a symbol in the cross. This was taught in the mystery schools as the deepest meaning of the cross. Then the teacher said to the pupil, Look how the plant holds its calyx chastely toward the sun, how the sunbeam kisses the flower of the plant. This was called the chaste kiss of the sunbeam, the sacred lance of love. In the chaste kiss of the sunbeam, the sacred lance of love to which the calyx of the plant opens, reference is made to the future ideal, where the human being will again develop their organs upward to the chastity of the plant. Now the human being is developed to the stage where they are permeated by desires. The human being will continue to develop to the stage where they have transformed their desires, where they will again be kissed by the spiritual beam of the sun, where they will again bring forth their own kind on a higher level, where the power of reproduction will be spiritualized. In the mystery schools, This was called the Holy Grail. This is the real ideal of the Holy Grail, an organ that human beings will have when their reproductive power will be spiritualized. In the past we see the chaste nature of the plant, in the present the human being permeated by desire, and in the future the human being with the purified body as they receive the spiritual beam of the sun in the chalice of the Holy Grail as a higher stage of development of the plant chalice. This is not abstract thinking, but a state in which we feel, not merely think, each stage of development. When we feel in this way what is developing, then we gradually ascend in such a way that we come to imaginative knowledge through the images. The image of the Holy Grail stands before us when we detach these images from sensory appearance and receive the image of that higher world. When we let such pictures, which represent to us certain processes of the spiritual world, and which have been established in the mystery schools, work upon us, we say that we let the occult script work upon us. This is the third part of the Rosicrucian training. We have such images in the seals and columns, as they were presented in Munich at the Congress on the beginning and end of the evolution of humanity and in the apocalypse. Human beings were formerly on an earth that was molten. They have only gradually come through many incarnations to their present body, and they will continue to develop through many more incarnations. Above all, the transformation of the larynx and the heart, 
will take place. These will be the organs of reproduction in the future. Today, thoughts, feelings, and sentiments only embody themselves in words which let the stirrings of my soul in this room reach your ear through vibrations and awaken similar thoughts and sensations in your souls. Later, the human being will create warmth and, finally, light, just as they now communicate their thoughts to the air in words. Just as the human being descended from a sphere of light and warmth in the past, so will they create warmth and light themselves in the future. This is represented on the first apocalyptic seal. The initial state of humankind, when the earth was still in a state of molten fluid, is represented by the fact that the feet of the human being in the picture are in a fiery metal stream. The future state is represented by the fiery sword coming out of the mouth of the human being. Such an image acts not only on the imagination, but also on the will of the human being when we watch the great forces of nature in this way. For the same force that lives as a primordial force in the will of the human being also lives in the whole outer world. If we learn to train our will, then the will of the world lives in us. Then our will becomes one with the will that flows through nature. The human being learns this through selfless devotion to the occult script. The fourth part of the Rosicrucian training is the preparation of the Philosopher's Stone. This is a high mystery which was kept concealed. At the end of the 18th century, some of it was revealed. For example, there was a remark in a central German newspaper by someone who had heard rumors about it. It said there, the Philosopher's Stone really exists, and there are only a few people who are not familiar with it. Many have already held it in their hands, only they do not know that it is the Philosopher's Stone. The definition was correct in its wording, but it must be properly understood. It is not a mere allegory. The Rosicrucian works on reality, going as far as into the physiology. They work on the real transformation of the earth and of the human being, deep into the physical body, not just on what is known in the ordinary sense as moral improvement, the refinement of morals and so on. Let us start with the human respiration. The regulation of the breathing process forms an important part of occult development. Human beings breathe in, need the oxygen, which mixes with the carbon in the human being, and then the human being breathes out carbon dioxide. If this alone continued forever, the atmosphere of the earth would gradually be filled with carbon dioxide and it would bring about the downfall of humanity. The existence of humans presupposes the existence of plants. The plant absorbs the carbon dioxide, retains the carbon, and releases the oxygen again. Thus a continuous cycle takes place between humans and plants. Humans, animals, and plants belong together. One is not possible without the other. Now in the human body, development goes like this. What the plant has to do for humans today, namely to produce coal, the corpses of the plants can still be seen in the coal, will later, as occultism can show us, 
be done by the human being themselves through their subsequently transformed heart and respiratory organs. One way in which the human being takes up this plant process and consciously carries it out themselves is to rhythmize the breathing process so that they do not give the carbon dioxide to the plant but build up the carbon in their own body. The human being learns to build up their body in themselves. If we compare this with what we are told about the Holy Grail, we now have it tangibly before us. Through the rhythmization of the respiratory process, the human being learns to produce carbon, which occurs in nature in the form of graphite and diamond, as the chaste plant nature within themselves. Producing carbon, the pure chaste substance within ourselves, that is called the preparation of the philosopher's stone. We have to imagine it similar to a clear diamond, but in a softer substance. The human being is a mighty inner apparatus. Through occult training they learn that they are working on the development of their own species into a higher form. When he heard about it, a materialistically minded person remarked, most characteristically, that this would be a beautiful thing. Perhaps it could be developed into a profitable branch of industry. Not at all. This very remark shows how necessary it is to keep such communications secret. For only when human beings will have reached such a moral and intellectual stage that they can no longer think egotistically can such secrets be communicated to them. The fifth is the correspondence between microcosm and macrocosm. For everything that happens outside in the world, there is a process in the human being that repeats it within them on a small scale. They only have to reflect on what is happening within them. Then they can intuitively come to the processes in the outer cosmos. For example, through a certain meditation and concentration on the interior of the eye, EYE, a person learns to recognize the sun according to its inner essence. For the eye is an extract from the essence of the sun. Goethe once said, The eye is formed on the light for the light. The light created the eye. Without the sun there is no eye. Everything that is in the sun as an essence, is in a certain way found in the eye. To recognize the light of the sun by concentrating on the essence of the eye, that is Rosicrucian training. In this way we can get to know the whole world from within the human being. By concentrating on the liver, for example, a person learns to know very specific creative forces of nature right up to the creation of the human being. Thus a person learns to know the whole world through themselves, for they are a small world. They learn how the microcosm and the macrocosm correspond to each other. By concentrating in a certain way on the human heart, they acquire knowledge of the nature of lions outside. This is not just a phrase. The human being must learn to find their way, individually, into the great universe then the feeling of being one with the whole cosmos will come of itself. When the human being learns to tread the path toward the big universe, out of every element of their body, including the etheric and astral body, with patience 
in taking one step after the other, they enlarge their organism into an organism which embraces all space. They are then within all beings. They can then experience that feeling which is called godliness. It is important for the human being to get away from themselves so that they can find a way to the creative powers. The more they come out of themselves, the more they ascend into the higher worlds. In the poem titled The Mysteries, Goethe described how a person travels to a mysterious temple in order to come together with different people through whom the different schools of thought flow together. Goethe places the cross entwined with roses at the entrance gate of the temple. Quote, Who added the roses to the cross? Close quote, asks the poem. Only someone says this who knows that the cross entwined with roses expresses a development toward a higher state of humanity. He also expressed it in the words, quote, And until thou truly hast this dying and becoming, thou art but a troubled guest, or the dark earth roaming. The human being must increasingly approach the state in which they will inwardly arise anew from the part that is dying off. Just like with the tree, the bark dies outwardly while it develops new seeds inwardly. So the human being, too, must arise anew inwardly by surrounding themselves outwardly with death. That is why in earlier times the initiates were compared to the oak tree and called druids. This, quote, dying and becoming, close quote, means that the human being always cultivates fresh life inwardly. The dying part becomes what sustains new life in them. That is why it says, quote, The power that holds constrained all humankind, the victor or himself, no more can bind. Close quote. That is to say, overcoming ordinary life, making it into a shell, so that the germinating seeds of a higher life can come to development within. The end of Lecture 3